It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Can you hear me on the phone? I've got you coming out of every orifice. (laughs) I'm really not, you're breaking off quite badly. Hello and welcome to The Lock-In where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have too. We're locked in today with Armando Iannucci, the comic genius behind On the Day, The Day Today, The Thick of It, In the Loop, Death of Stalin, Veep. He even co-invented Alan Partridge. Is there no end to your achievements? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I always, I mean, I always feel, that sounds quite impressive, that list, actually, you read out. But I'm always aware that a lot of that is collaborative. You know, I've, I've there's a whole group of us that have been very um, lucky to to have been around at the same time as. And, you know, I think my skill is, I suppose, is marshalling them and trying to get the best out of them. Uh, and also, I suppose, just making sure we keep moving on, really, that we don't, you know, we haven't done 17 series of Alan Partridge or something like that, which is probably why he's lasted as long as he does, has. Have you always been funny? Um, I think I have, yeah. I mean, I can remember telling jokes publicly, age 12, at, like, school sort of fundraisers and things. I was the MC, But I would steal jokes off the radio. I was a big fan of radio comedy. Um, and I would just steal jokes off the news quiz and weekending and stuff like that and <clears throat> do the odd impression of, like, Harold Wilson, which tells you how long ago that was. Why did you, why uh, did you do uh, it, do you think? Uh, if only I knew. I don't know. I don't know. I like the idea of playing about, really. And laughter is infectious. And if you could cause someone to laugh, that's infectious. I wasn't very, very sporty at school. But my shtick was, I suppose, I was a bit, I was very bookish. But my shtick was I could make people laugh. And, and that seemed like a good way of, you know, <laughs> surviving. Um, uh, but I just, I love the playfulness of it. I remember... It was when I listened to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for the first time, when it was a radio show and it came on the radio for the first time, just being absolutely mesmerised by how comedy could invent worlds and can be creative and absurd and 
uh, daring and imaginative, and that just appeals. You to mentioned me. the series earlier. It always looks like you're a great bunch of friends there. Are you? We are. We are. We haven't had a kind of. It's a great source of pride that we haven't had a, an enormous bust up, and you know, don't speak to each other. We're all still. I think what it was was we never were for for on the hour. I kind of put them together as a group. So we were never a group like all at university or all performing in a sketch troupe or something. We we came together for the show and we kind of clicked. You know, I knew certain people like David Schneider, Rebecca Front, uh, but I didn't know Steve Coogan. I didn't know Chris Morris and the writers we put together. And, and I think because we made each other laugh, you know, we've been keeping in touch ever since. You know, Steve will always send me the latest Partridge thoughts and... You know, I'll show if I'm in the middle of a cutting a film, you know, I'll show it to like Chris and Rebecca and people. And uh, and I think also, as I said, because we don't do because we don't do our stuff together every year, because we go off and do our own things. I think it's that's kept a kind of healthy, a healthy dynamic so that, we're you know, we we've got our own space, but then we come together. And and also I bring in new people, new talent all the time as well. Do you always know how it's going to turn out? No, no, absolutely not. No, <laughs> I think maybe when you're doing a film, you you kind of have to do a lot more preparation and pre-thinking and rehearsal and so on, simply because with a film, you just have one go at it. You can't do like a pilot film um, and a film is expensive. You've got a limited amount of time in certain locations with like 250 people there. You can't muck about, so you've got kind of got to know what you're doing. But even then, I try and build in an element of play and a bit of uh, improvisation. But I, I schedule that earlier. I schedule that in a rehearsal period before the film. But with things like, I mean, for example, when we were doing I'm Alan Partridge when he was set in a hotel, we had no idea what it was going to be like because we'd had this success with Knowing Me, Knowing You, the chat show. And we decided after one series to just pull the rug out from under it <laughs> and and actually ask ourselves what would happen to Alan if he was no longer on the telly since he kind of lives for television and he lives for that public profile what would he be like but we thought you know it might just all crash and burn and similarly with the thick of it it was deliberately I mean it was done very cheaply it was done in you know the late lamented BBC4 that's now just been announced turning into an archive service the first controller of Radio 4, Rolly Keating, I just went to him and said, look, I want to do this slightly, slightly improvised, slightly frenetic, uh, behind the scenes of politics. I want to shoot it in three days, you know, five actors, a set of disused offices as our location. I don't know what it'll be like. And, you know, to give him his due, he said, okay, well, here's a certain amount of money. What can you do with this? And I said, I could probably do three programmes with that. And we shot three programmes in seven or eight days, uh, all in the one. Two, but I had no idea what it was going to be like. And, and, and so we built into it just shooting lots of stuff, trying lots of stuff out, but keeping it very simple so that the lights were all in one place. We didn't have to keep stopping and starting and moving the lights and resetting. So, and so that the actors could just... Um, go with the flow and um, I thought well we'll find out what it's like in the edit but I, I think it was when 
Peter Capaldi tries to fire the minister in the opening scene. And, <laughs> uh, and, and the minister shouts at him and, and Malcolm just goes very quiet and stares at him and gives him the Malcolm stare. I remember t- I remember leaning over to whoever was next to me as I was watching it on the monitor going, I think we've got a series. Because I, could, I just knew this was, this was working. <laughs> but yeah, but I like to be surprised. That's why I kind of like to get in... Um, writers and, and actors that I haven't worked with before or from different backgrounds, different performing styles. Because I do genuinely, you know, I want to kind of remain the audience as well. I want to be surprised, you know, because otherwise I don't want everything to sound like it's been written in the one voice, you know, that every character's dialogue could be um, moved around and, and given to other, you know, I think everyone has, to, I think that I, I want it to feel... I kind of want it to feel raw and un, um, un, uncooked and, un, you know, uh, th- try and keep the element of artifice, of which there is a lot, d- in the background. What about the obscenities? I mean, Malcolm Tucker is a notoriously foul-mouthed man. He makes yeah. the I mean, he used to have to get permission to use the word cunt on air. Yeah. And he makes right. that look anodyne now. <laughs> no, I still have the emails where... <laughs> where <laughs> Uh, someone in the BBC said last week's episode had had an equivalent of oh, I don't know thirteen point nine fucks per minute. Um, if you if you want your latest script requires three cunts, we'll allow you three cunts if you can get the fuck quotient down to under ten per minute. Um, <laughs> um, no, the swearing came. You know, I'm not a swearer. I'm not. You know, Alan Partridge isn't full of swearing. You know, day to day isn't full of swearing. It, um, I just, I did my research and I went to speak to these people who had worked in, and at the time it was the sort of the tail end of the Blair government, um, former civil servants, communications directors, journalists, MPs, former ministers. And the impression I got was that it was very macho, very high testosterone. Every day was a crisis. And there was a lot of swearing, but it was very dull swearing. You know, it was just the F word again and again and again and again. And I thought, well, we have to reflect the swearing, but it's very boring if it's just someone saying fuck all the time. So it's more about how do we dress the swearing up in... So it's really the elaborate adjectives that go around <laughs> the swearing. that, that kind of, And it was always kind of our fun thing to do at the end of a busy day. If we felt we'd worked hard on the script, we'd give ourselves half an hour of writing Malcolm swearing. At the end of the day, you know, as a sort of as a sort of loosening up, loose, you know, was a cooling down exercise at the end of the day. Are you ever afraid of you'll stop being funny? I'm always afraid of that. <laughs> I mean, I've always, I, I suppose, if you speak to any comedian or comic writer, they'll say the same thing. It's like whenever you start a new thing, I'm instantly thinking this could be the worst thing ever. This is going to be a terrible disaster. This is awful, you know. And and everyone will tell you about the kind of misery of the first draft because the first draft is always rubbish because you're still not sure. You're not, you don't know what the characters are yet. You're still playing about with it. Um, you're still finding the voice. And also the first ed- edit is always terrible because you remember the high points as you're shooting. But when you watch the first edit, you think, Oh, I thought it was funnier. And that's because you need to go in and then find the funnier take here or 
the pacing there needs to change or, you know, it's things like that. So it's always, I think any any columnist, I'm sure, would say their first draft is, is mis- you know, is awful and they want to give up. And you, you sort changed of have to this go from through. a PhD on Milton, didn't you? Milton, yes. Was he yes. any help to you? <laughs> uh, I know I stopped. I stopped. I never finished it. I did three years. I mean, I stopped when I realised um, that the opening lines to Paradise Lost of Man's First Disobedience of the Fruit of That Forbidden Tree are the same rhythm scheme to the theme tune to the Flintstones, which is of Man's First Disobedience and the Fruit of That Forbidden Tree. And that's when I thought, I'm really not taking this seriously. And also, at the time, I was spending a lot of time performing and, and writing shows and doing one-man shows and so on. So I knew, actually, that comedy was um, exciting me and, and that's really the direction I should go in. So I just stopped. Um, and I did, you know, 20 years later, I did do a programme on Paradise Lost on BBC Two and I got a very nice note from my supervisor <laughs> at Oxford saying, consider the thesis complete, which was very nice. <laughs> Um, but I, I suppose what I got from that and doing an English degree is, I suppose, is analysing language, analysing. I mean, actually, if you want to look at the, if you want to be academic for a moment, I mean, Paradise Lost is full of people like Satan using words to sway people and using, you know, twisting logic. He's in hell and he's, say, he's, he's in hell and, uh, and he's saying, you know, heaven, hell be thou my heaven, you know, evil be my good, you know. He's saying, you know, we can make the most of this. But if you analyse it, he's talking nonsense. Evil be my good is is nonsense. Um, but he sways his supporters into into joining him. And and it was, you know, as I discovered when I was doing the documentary, Milton was actually Oliver Cromwell's spin doctor. He was called his secretary of tongues was his official title. And it was his job to write Latin defences of Cromwell's actions and the Republican cause for the kind of royal courts of Europe to defend I was going to say, Britain. you must have found Milton politically congenial. He's, I mean, he's all for free speech and, you know, he's quite a radical. Um, uh, and and that, I think, you know, given the time he was in, is sort of fascinating. I mean, to the extent that he was fairly isolated. I mean, by the end of his life, I mean, he went blind as well, but by the end of his life, he was fairly isolated because he had these radical views on freedom of expression. Um, he was very into divorce. That was his big, <laughs> he was, he was all for it. Um, so that, that, that was, that, that was kind of interesting and kind of a sort of sad figure in, in the end as well. So sort of slightly dejected, isolated figure at the end, I think as well. You must get asked for advice a lot about you know, how do I get on? How do I be you? Well, <laughs> I don't think, I mean, there's no plan, you know. I just went with my instincts. And what I say to writers, I can only speak about comedy. I can't speak about drama or, you know, serious literature. And, you know, it, because I haven't, that's not been my career. But what I say is, now more than ever, the opportunities are there to to keep being creative. You know, it's so easy to write a, a fake blog or a, you know, a, a fake diary or, a, you know, put, or to write sketches and put them up online or to even go out and film stuff with a camera. It's so easy. So you can create content. And just the, the more you make, the better you'll become, you know, because you learn with everything you do. You know, you're always improving or you're always trying to improve. So the more you write and also write what makes you laugh, not don't try and write what you think the controller of 
Radio 4 will laugh at or the chief commissioning editor of Channel 4, you know. Eventually, you'll have to deal with that. But if you're already underpowering your comedy because you're trying to make it fit your idea of what someone else is like, then I don't think you're going to be writing your instinctively best stuff. So I think you should always write what makes you and your circle of friends laugh, really. You mentioned controllers and you've already yes. mentioned BBC three and four. BBC four, yeah. we've just heard, is going to go down to being a repeat channel. Isn't the yeah. thing about th BBC three and BBC four, they shouldn't have been started, should they? But look what they've created. I mean, they've created, uh, they, were, they were set up as an opportunity to reach different audiences, but also to try stuff out. Um, to try stuff out, not on such a high profile stage that if it didn't work, it's a huge failure in front of everyone. And then all those involved are dejected and never make another show again. So out of BBC Three, we've got, you know, this country, we've got Fleabag, Gavin and Stacey. We've got uh, BBC Four. We've got some fantastic dramas, amazing documentaries. And, and as I say, I did the thick of it on BBC Four. It was a BBC Four show. And it was all about those taking the risks for, you know, small budgets. So it's really a kind of, uh, you know, an experimental laboratory, really, <laughs> you know. And the best of it then gravitates onto BBC Two and BBC One and then eventually Netflix. And, of course, they end up getting the credit for it. But you forget that it arose out of, out of that, really. So what do you think of the decision to make BBC Four just repeats? Well, I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm just really sad. You know, I, I know there's a lot of pressure on the BBC because of cutbacks and, you know, lower take up in the licence fee. And I, I think there will come a time when they have to think, you know, and I've, I've done, <clears throat> I've, I've talked about this publicly before, about where BBC's encouraged outside the UK to make as much money as possible to really set, really kind of monetize its brand because the BBC is so... Um, the the name recognition for the BBC across the world is so huge that if they were to, as I think they're now doing, set up a BBC subscription channel in America, I think it would get, you know, an uptake on the same rate as, say, people pay subscriptions for, like, HBO, you know, because people want good shows. And, and the BBC, and also news coverage internationally, people turn to the BBC. So I think it's important that it's actually encouraged as much as possible to, you know, profit from what it does and then feed those profits back into programmes in the UK. So you can, so you've then got the amount of money that you, the BBC can, and Channel 4 and all public service broadcasters in, the, in Britain can make shows that are as, have the production values of the likes of Amazon and Netflix because they're the main competitors. I mean, if the government, I've, I've said this in the past, but, you know, if the BBC was a weapons programme, the government would be out there going around the world, selling it and, you know, doing deals with Saudi Arabia and China and, you know, and taking business leaders over with them. But for some reason, they have this blind spot about the BBC because it annoys them. And it annoys them if they're in the Labour Party because it attacks the government. It annoys them in the Conservative Party because it attacks the government. Or it doesn't attack it, but it, it, it explores it. It, it. it questions it. It probes it. You know, that's its job. And the fact that it's getting complaints from left and right consistently kind of indicates it must be doing something right in that it's it's fairly even-handed 
It's always accused of having a real skew towards the left. I know, but, uh, you know, well, look, you since you've retired, you've said that you're a sort of an old fashioned classical Tory with a small T. I suppose I am. Yeah. Yeah. Andrew Neil is another person who, you know, has links with Rupert Murdoch and is to the right. Um, uh, we've had BBC chairman and indeed controllers of the BBC, Michael Grade, for example, who now sits, I think, on the Tory crossbenchers in the House of Lords. Um, there, you know, there are, you could make an argument saying that high profile interviewers in the BBC have been on the right. The point is, you and Andrew Neil and, and everyone else, Andrew Ma, who's on the left, ha- have been able to kind of put your own pot- political or cultural uh, uh, beliefs to one side because you're doing a job. And I think that's the case with the BBC. It's full of people who will actually be passionate about politics. You know, it'd be unusual for the news department not to be staffed by people who are passionate about politics. And if they're passionate about politics, they'll have opinions. But that doesn't question their professional uh, ability. You know, it's about putting those opinions to one side and getting on with the job. I agree. Thank you. (laughs) It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you, um, do you understand white people find it so difficult that there are there's so little right-wing comedy on the on the bbc i i i do wonder whether people do think that you know is there a massive outcry of people saying why isn't there a right-wing comedy on the bbc and i I thought about this the other day i think there's something to do with comedy i mean comedy is about it's subversive it's subversive it's unfair if you want to be strict about it in that it takes it takes an idea or a belief we have about someone and stretches it. You know, it doesn't stand up to scientific uh, or even political analysis, you know, which is why poli- uh, comedians are not politicians. Um, and there's something about comedy which, you know, it wants to undermine or undercut or, or ridicule or subvert. 
And if you are conservative with a small c, then your impulse isn't to subvert, isn't it? It's to, it's to maintain, it's to preserve. Um, and that's why, that's why I think there are so few comedians who, who mark their comedy as of the right, because I wonder whether a rightist attitude is, is something different, is more provocative, is more, you get right-wing journalists, you know, provocateurs, who, you know, who, whose job it is every week to say something that will infuriate or annoy or, you know, just push some kind of level of an emotional, that's a different, so it feels like a kind of comedy, but it's not, it's a different tactic. It's more, a, um, it, it's, it's more to, it's, it's more a rhetorical argumentative ploy, you know, which is just as legitimate, but I think it's just a different, it's a different mode than comedy, I think. Is what you do satire, do you think? Well, I, you know, I, I know people call me a satirist, but I don't see that because I think, you know, I don't wake up in the morning going, what shall I satirise today? I it's just, very I just hard think, to define anyway. It is because, you know, is Alan Partridge satire? You could say it's sort of social satire, but then so is most comedy then, you know. <laughs> so is Faulty Towers then. So is Father Ted. Um, and I don't, I also have this image, you know, satire, if, if you say satirist, in my head, I see someone in black and white in the 50s doing impressions of Harold Macmillan. You know, that's, that's, what I, that's what I see in my head when you say satirist. And yet, you know, I love Jonathan Swift, Alexander Pope. I love Charles Dickens, I'm a huge fan of. And they were satirists. And I think what it is that I enjoy about them is that they want to take on the big subject. They want to look at the public stage and examine what's ridiculous about it or what's gone wrong or, you know, uh, that kind of um, large, ambitious target is always something that I think quite exciting. Almost impossible to believe in satire after Trump, isn't it? Well, because he was his own satirist. You know, he was, I've called him a self-basing satirist because he, he, he he's, an, he's his own entertainer. He's a jokesmith. He, he likes the audience he likes the stage he he's obsessed with ratings you know he will talk about uh a, a, a cnn he will he will call it you know low ranking low rating he'll talk about how when his state of the union was done the figures were through the roof you know he sees himself as a political entertainer really and also i suppose political satire for want of a better word is all about there's an understanding, you know, when we were doing the thick of it, there was an understanding that there are a set of rules by which public life is conducted. And we are showing how those rules might be bent or subvertive or occasionally broken. But if Trump is coming along and saying there are no rules, you know, literally I could shoot a guy in the face in Fifth Avenue and still get elected, then, then there are no rules to subvert because he's saying there are no rules in the first place. You know, he's he's advocating... Anarchy. And strangely enough, the comedians who have been most effective against, with Trump are those who actually try and reconstruct the rules. You become journalists, become analysts, you know, use research and their resources to, to go back and dig out what Trump said here or dig out a document in which he was recorded as saying that and just lay out the facts and, and talk you through them in a funny way. So it's almost like the... the the comedian finding that Trump is now the entertainer, the comedians have had to become the kind of 
the journalists in a way that's but is it really acceptable for someone like you who's a comedian mm. to use a column in the new statesman to shitbag boris johnson um yeah well i'm I, having just read um uh failures of state which is the sunday times insight team's whole insight into the whole um failure of how the government machine operated in the first six to eight months of COVID. Yes, because I'm really angry with the fact that Johnson and so many around him were so complacent about COVID and were so, and he in particular, was so distracted by other affairs at the early days when he went missing in action in February of last year as the infection was running rife uh, and and really kind of bedding in the UK, to just not be up to attending any of the COBRA meetings and to be going around saying I'm shaking hands with everyone, where, you know, by then the World Health Organization was talking about keeping distance. It was just someone, I think, caught in that, um, just not up to the job. And and that is my concern. My, my concern is, you know, and he was, he's the first prime minister we've had, I think, in a long time, who was elected by a party membership rather than electorate. Now, yes, he then went on and won an election. Um, but there's something about... We've lost that sense of asking, you know, what, what is the Prime Minister there for? And part of the column that I was doing in the New Statement was to talk about the post of Prime Minister. We've put too much level of expectation in it. We now want a superman in that role who can do everything. It's an impossible uh, job, isn't it? It's an impossible job. But I think successive prime ministers have made it impossible in that they've wanted more and more control. They've centralised more control in number 10 and their teams of advisers. They've tried to... I mean, Boris Johnson tried to sideline the Treasury by imposing his own advisers on, on, on the eventual Chancellor. Uh, Parliament is ignored, especially if you've got a big majority. You can push what you, you like through Parliament. Uh, and we've let that happen. You know, we, we've allowed that to happen as well, because we're also looking for supermen and superwomen to be in charge of the country. You know, they're not allowed to, you know, have any, you know, to to to, to have any sort of flaws or I mean, that's why I, I said one of my great heroes is Clement Attlee, because he just let people get on with it. He chose good people and he let them get on with it, you know, and he was there as the sort of presiding figure to make sure that what they were doing was all heading in the right direction. He's probably the greatest Where, prime minister of the 20th century, isn't he? I think so, yeah. I think so. And, you know, and for someone who would never survive in today's climate because he's boring, he's dull, he looks like an accountant, you know, he's posh, uh, you know, all these things that just don't fit the the kind of the, the grid that we want from someone now. But it's actually, it was his sort of, steely lack of ego which said look i'll get these fine people in some of them i'm sure want my job um but their job is to is to get on with it and i don't feel that really i don't know how far back you can go with it maybe, maybe it was under thatcher that sense of cabinet ministers being slightly disempowered being being told that actually you know, their budget is determined by the Treasury and their policies is determined by number 10. And they're really there as the as the kind of, you know, the go-between between number 10 and, and, and the public. Uh, uh, and, and, I, and I think, you know, the, 
I think the politicians who succeed are the ones who don't try and do everything themselves. Because then you get in a situation, if everything has to go through you, if something happens to you, like if Boris falls ill, for example, everything stops because there's no, there's no mechanism to, because everything has been going through number 10. There's no way of <laughs> keeping, every, you know, communications and decisions flowing. Blair was just as bad, though. Well, yeah, he was criticised for his sofa government, exactly. And that's that was the central... The thick of it arose partly because, you know, I was very against Blair siding with George Bush and deciding to invade Iraq. Um, not because of, you know, whoever Saddam Hussein was, because but just because it had nothing to do with 9-11. And a threat to our safety was being invented, this 45-minute... Uh, and everyone at the time was saying to Blair, this is madness. You know, everyone right, left and centre was saying, this is madness. And yet he was able to do it. And that made me ask myself, how is that possible? How is it for one person, who happens to be the Prime Minister, to be able to get a war uh, through despite the fact that everyone's opposed to the idea, which then made me want to then look at how does government work, how does Whitehall work, how do the departments work, which then led to the thick of it. But, the you know, the Butler report into into Blair's sofa government was pretty damning, actually. It was. Saying that he, he, was, he, was, he was, you know, he was cutting not just the Cabinet out, but Parliament, but, you know, it, it, they, they were more or less drumming up false evidence. I think it's partly because people know they wouldn't like to be in that position themselves because yeah. they, they're conscious of their own feet of clay. Yes. And they, they, they'll take any kind of crap from people who put themselves in that position. I think also it's like, yes, we, we've demanded a, a kind of superstar status from our kind of political leaders. Uh, and part of what the... Th think of it was there to do also was to show how actually they're all human beings um you know they're all under pressure they're all you know if anything <laughs> I, I kind of feel the most sympathetic figure is the minister at the center of it because you can you because you sort of feel for him or her because no decision they make is going to be the right one because either they're going to come up under pressure from number 10 or from the media or from the public you know i think we're all we're all to blame for this um intense pressure and, and and this kind of superior status that we want to give to our leaders. Do you like Britain? I love Britain. I'm very proud of Britain. Uh, you know, I, I, and, and I say Britain as opposed to England. I, I love, uh, you know, I love the Union. I love, uh, you know, I love British literature, English literature. I love the fact that our comedies, we have this amazing comic tradition. I love the... Fact we don't take things seriously, you know, <laughs> you know, and that doesn't mean to say you can get. Um, you write about the things you love. Actually, you write about the things that make you passionate. One of the reasons I, I made David Copperfield was I wanted to show, I wanted it after Brexit. I felt there was very much a kind of danger that we saw ourselves as a very inward, divided, isolated, unfriendly country. And actually, I don't think that's the case. I think Britain is a very outgoing, generous, imaginative, funny, warm, kind country. And that's what I wanted to show in David Copperfield. Um, 
But there is that element, and maybe it's why I went into comedy. You know, when you're from an, an immigrant community, when you're, you know, my, my mother was second generation Italian, but my father was first generation Italian. You know, you're growing up an Italian in Scotland and then a Scot in England, and then for a while a Brit in America. You have this sense of, you know, are you in or are you out? Are you, are you, are you, do you belong or are you slightly on the margins? And I don't know whether my response to that is to kind of go with that and, and uh, you know, the fact that I can sort of slightly stand back a bit. You know, if I was at a very Scottish occasion, like a Cayley, part of me would be going, this is a bit odd. But also if I was a very Italian occasion, like a big wedding, part of me would be going, this is a bit odd. Um, you know, and maybe that, you know, I don't know whether that's just me or whether it's part of my, you know, upbringing or background or whatever, but there is an element of that. And I'm also aware of the fact that, you know, when, you know, my father came to Britain because he loved the idea of democracy. He loved the idea of free, you know, he fought as a very young teenager in the Second World War against Mussolini, against the fascists, you know, and he came to Britain because he saw it as a as a beacon of freedom and democracy, and I think that's to be celebrated. And 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 actually, that's why you get, you know, a lot of immigrant communities love Britain more and are more vocal about how much they love Britain than I think people who see themselves as being, you know, traditionally English or tradition, you know, who are slightly embarrassed about waving the flag and and and, and saying I love this country. You know, it, it's because those migrants have taken the conscious decision to embrace those those values. But why do you ask the question? Well, because a lot of people think we've lost you to America now because you've been oh, no. showrunner on Veep and all that kind of thing. No, no, no. No, I came back there about four years ago. And in fact, Veep was a British production. We um, All the writers were British, the directors were British, um, we wrote it and rehearsed it here. We shot it in Baltimore and then I came back and edited it here. So it was a British production. So I was here three quarters of the year. Um, but I I stopped doing Veep because, you know, I, I feel my creative base is here. My, my home is here. My roots are here. Um, so I haven't, you know, I haven't gone to America, which is why, you know, I then went on and did, did another series of The Thick of It. I did the death of Stalin, which was shot in London, and you know bits of bits of Russia, and David Copperfield, which was you know a celebration of, uh, as, as well as the character personality of of of, of Britain, the, the landscape and and the diversity of the landscape and the the coasts and the towns and the industrial and the rural and so on. Is being a showrunner as you were in Veep? Mm. Is that a big deal? It, it's a big yes and. I wasn't aware about how big a deal it was until I started doing it. And, and, and it's a sort of, you know, it's a kind of, you realise when you're out in America how it's the aspiration of every writer to, be, to eventually become a showrunner. It's the sort of, you know, it's the chairman of the board. It's the kind of, <laughs> you know, that's the kind of People take you seriously for. must be rather alarming. Yes, you can go mad with power, which is why, you know, you... you directors and and you know people who are very powerful in hollywood ha have been able to you know get away with what they have you know i think you can there's something slightly i remember on the death of stalin and this was when we were filming in london but 
I remember there was a point where um, after Stalin dies, his dacha is completely cleared out by the NKVD. And it's implied that anyone who's been close to him is either going to be taken away or is going to be shot. And I did need to do a kind of sweeping shot of in the background, just seeing people having been shot, so bodies on the ground. So I remember lining everyone up, all, all the background artists and extras, and just going, you're dead, you're alive, you're dead, you're dead. You know, and actually <laughs> kind of, the power of life and death. Just and the ones who I said you're dead then lay on the ground, you know. And I just thought that is that that must be stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, you know, you are you are when you're on set, you know. If I say get me a sandwich, you know, not that I would say that like that, but you know, someone would go and get a sandwich, and I suppose it can make you go crazy. What Similarly, are you going to do next? Uh, well, we've got another series of Avenue 5, which is... You see, there we are, Avenue 5. It's for HBO. We shoot that in Watford. It's set on board a spaceship. It's a cruise liner, a tourist cruise liner, that takes 6,000 passengers. Uh, it's meant to be an eight-week cruise to Saturn and back. Uh, something goes wrong. They're stuck up there for eight years. So it's basically just a social experiment in how do 6,000 people cope with life together for eight years. Who's in charge? Do the hierarchy stay the same? You know, do, do, do people on first class still get first class treatment or does that go by the book? You know, who, who are the real leaders? Um, things like that. But that's all shot in the UK. That's all shot 100%. That's a UK production. So you so, spend most of your life in your shed, do you? Uh, when writing, um, obviously the last year because of, you know, pandemic circumstances, this we were, so when, I mean, I love being in a room with the other writers and I love sparking off the other writers and, you know, making each other laugh. And I love rehearsing with the cast and, um, you know, but we've been writing it on Zoom at the moment. And, and you know, eventually when it's safe to kind of get up and running, we'll get up and running. Um, but I like the, I, I mean, I, I'm always fidgety, you know, if I do a month or so of writing on my own I'm then desperate to do something with other people but once I've done that with other people which can be quite intensive especially filming it's very intensive I then want to spend some time doing something on my own it's always and always just trying to move on really what's your ideal evening <laughs> my ideal evening is um is uh well we all eat about seven o'clock and then we just slump in front of the telly uh, and watch Gogglebox and Line of Duty. And um, I don't really watch lots of comedy comedy shows. I, I watch them during the day because they feel too much like work now. Um, something funny. Is that, this you and your that, family, is it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the idea. Or having friends round. I mean, obviously, we, again, we haven't been able to do that for a while. Having friends round and just chatting, really. My ideal weekend is doing nothing apart from reading and pottering about. But I think that happens as you get older anyway. <laughs> Armando, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for Pleasure. sparing the time to talk to us. No, no problem. One day we'll do this in the park. Well, there you are. Armando Iannucci, a man to give inspiration to classroom clowns everywhere. Next week, we've got one of the country's most thoughtful military men, Justin Maciejewski. He's currently director of the National Army Museum, but he's also done time in the army as a senior officer 
and boasts a range of other qualifications that basically amount to this. When he comes to the British military, he knows his onions. Do tune in for that, and in the meantime, make the most of the weather. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.